listening to the Bible 126 show. Okay, well, let's get at it, and let's uh, bow our hearts with a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we, <laughs> once again, we just thank you that in your kingdom there are no accidents, no coincidences, that we're all here right now by your divine appointment. So, Father, we come before your throne especially seeking that your will would be done in every life in this room, that you indeed would help us to awake to what you have for us and what you would have of us in the days that are ahead. As we commit this evening and ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, we're in the 16th session of our exploration of the book of Genesis. And I have some good news for you. We probably figured that out already. There's no more particle physics, I think, in Genesis. No more mathematics, no more physics, whatever. We're actually into the, the in fact, we're in unit two, where it's really a narrative. And you've probably noticed the shift of gears as we shifted from what most scholars would call the first unit, which first 11 chapters, which many people label as prehistory, um, into the call of Abraham, which really initiates, in, in many respects, the primary story of the Bible, because he's the beginning of a nation. The purpose of that nation is to bring it into, into our consciousness a person, Jesus Christ. And uh, it's astonishing to really discover how pivotal Abraham is in all our lives. Many of us, especially New Testament Christians, typically dismiss Abraham as part of the Old Testament. That's sort of superseded by the New, and nothing could be further from the truth. One of the things we try to underscore is that we're dealing with a unified book, six books written by over 40 guys over thousands of years, but it's really an integrated message. And, and the primary pivot of that message, of course, is Jesus Christ. But what God sets up to bring Christ into, our, into history is to call Abraham and from him make him the father of many nations. And I'm not just speaking of Ishmael and his descendants. One of the things that's astounding, in fact, we get some very strange requests and, and inquiries from some of our subscribers, puzzled, you know, about the, the, the significance of Abraham. And he's very significant. Every one of our benefits, yours and mine, as Gentiles, derives from God's commitments that he gave to Abraham. So we need to understand that. Okay, we are in session 16 of 24, reviewing the book of Genesis. And uh, we'll call this group of chapters, we'll look at the walk of Abraham. We had the call of Abraham last time, and this time we'll talk about Abraham and his walk. And you'll be, you'll be intrigued to discover that while he's the father of the faithful, he wasn't perfect. He stumbled and made mistakes, and we can take comfort in that in large measure. In the panorama of history that many of you may recognize from our baseline study called Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, 
Uh, we obviously are after the flood but before the monarchy in this era that uh, some people would label the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and the 12 tribes, uh, exemplified, of course, by Joseph uh, in the close of the book of Genesis. So uh, we've been through what, unit one, the creation all the way through to the Tower of Babel. Now we're in part two, and we took the first of two sessions last time where we looked at uh, chapters uh, 12 uh, through 15. And now we're going to, in this session, take a look at the, the remainder that focus on Abraham. Now you may recall, as we looked at the sons of Noah, in chapter 10, we had Shem and his sons, and there were a group of them. But under our facts said, there was a string that went through Peleg and so forth, and uh, ultimately goes to Nahor, Terah, and Abraham. And uh, Abraham is, of course, our focus, and uh, just by way of review. And, and it's useful to refresh our memory on the family, because it's going to overlay uh, so much of what goes on. Abraham's father, Terah, had three sons that we know of. There may have been others. Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and a daughter by the name of Sarai. And, of course, Sarai measures Ab uh, marries Abraham. So on three different occasions, when he passes her off as his sister, he's not really lying. He's just doing, indulging chicanery to avoid his jeopardy as being her husband, who would be killed by the pagans for her. She's apparently a... This gal was a foxy lady, so, um, or whatever the term is. I better be careful with my slang because it has different meaning through different eras, and I'm part of the past generation. I've got to watch that language. Um, <laughs> Abraham, of course, has Ishmael and Isaac, which we're going to be dealing with. Nahor has a whole string of uh, offspring, but the one that's important, and, and uh, Haran has uh, two, son, uh, 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 two sons and a daughter. Uh, Abraham. Uh, has a nephew by the name of Lot under Haran, and that pro uh, will figure prominently, especially in tonight's series. And uh, Bethuel under Nahor has uh, Rebekah and Laban, and they're going to appear very, very prominent in next sessions, where Rebekah mar marries Isaac, and there's a whole uh, thing that c comes from that, not the least of which is two sons, Esau and Jacob, and we'll talk about that as we get there. Laban has two daughters, Leah and Rachel, and they, of course, are going to be very significant in the following several sessions because they will marry Jacob and, and give birth to the 12 tribes, in effect. And so, and then Lot has this dismal close to last time's sessions where the two daughters um, of Lot, through getting him drunk and through incest, give, spawn the Moabites and the Ammonites, a very um, infamous beginning to those regions. But session 16, we're going to talk about Hagar the Egyptian. You can almost visualize uh, with my tongue being flippant and saying, uh, let's go down to Egypt, what harm can that cause? Huh? And of course, one of the things that happened when Abram was down in Egypt is he picked up a handmaid by the name of Hagar, which will figure prominently in chapter 16. Chapter 17, the names will be changed and the covenant reconfirmed. We'll talk about that. And uh, then this strange episode in uh, chapter 18 at the Oaks of Mamre. Not fully understood by many people. Some surprises will be in that chapter. And, of course, the very well-known climax to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I suspect it may have some surprises for you, too, from a New Testament perspective that may, may be very provocative. And then there's a final lapse of Abraham at the end. Uh, and that'll be our evening. So Hagar the Egyptian, Genesis 16. Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, bear him no children... And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name is Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, 
the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarai. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you can be uh, very, very hard on Abraham here. I, and I, I don't, I, I'm not disciplined enough to call him Abraham. His name doesn't get changed for another chapter, but just bear with me on that. In any case, you can be hard on him, except that was the standard practice in that culture, that if a woman is barren, she could have a surrogate wife bear the child. That was, uh, that was just, uh, uh, that, was, that was done. But see, God had been very specific before, back in chapter 15, that, he, that she would have issue. Now, she's going to get to be, she's going to be 90 before she has a child. Can you imagine that? We, we can, I think, be sympathetic to Abraham's skepticism here. Or he, see, this is one of the lessons we're going to get out of, out of uh, the Torah is that when we start trying to help God, we usually mess things up. Abraham's motivations were probably very sound. God had promised him an heir, and this is the way you got heirs in those days. If your wife didn't bear, you got a surrogate, and, and uh, that would seem very straightforward. And uh, so the, the child born of that union would be the wife's first child in, in, in their eyes. We're going to discover a very strange thing when we get to chapter 22, because by then Abraham will have Ishmael and Isaac, about 13 years apart, and um, God speaks to Abraham, take your only son. When you read that, you may, you may stumble. Wait a minute, he had two sons. Not as far as God is concerned. Not as far as his promise is concerned. Not as far, far as God's plans are concerned. And uh, we'll talk about that as it goes. But let's recognize that trying to help God is dangerous stuff because God knows what he's doing. And uh, there is a myth that floats around that God helps those who help themselves. That's not true. God helps those who come to an end of themselves. And that's usually what he's looking for. You'll discover as you study your Bible, it's often when someone comes to the end of the rope that God can finally start to use him. I taught Bible studies for more than almost two or three decades. And they were head-wide followings. And you could look at that and say, wow, wasn't that neat? And God couldn't really use me until I came to the end of my rope and went through a valley where I was virtually suicidal. And it's from that point on that I finally started listening. At least a little bit. Now I'll tell you, not always, but a little bit, right? But uh, anyway. And Sarai said unto Abraham, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing, and I pray thee, go in unto my maid. And may be that I may obtain... See, one of the things you need to realize, to be childless, especially in that culture, was a curse for a woman. Her primary role to her husband was to, to bear issue. And uh, so being barren was, a, was, a, was a, a, a heavy trip for her. And Sarah's Abram's wife took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. They've waited a long time. This wasn't a casual decision. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. You girls can relate to that, I suspect, right? So she's now, a pride takes over, and it's always at the root of these problems, isn't it? Um, we're going to see a similar kind of relationship with Leah later on. And um, 
When she knew that God had heard her affliction, she named her children that way, Reuben and Simeon, to reflect that. So we'll find these names are going to be very important, especially when we get to the 12 tribes. Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. Nice wifely thing to suggest. My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. And Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the language here is that it is, she was apparently quite abusive to Sarah. Said Sarah finally split. And uh, so there is a parallel here about Abraham taking his wife's advice and then not accepting responsibility for that. Namely, Adam is in a similar position. He did what his wife said, and when God confronted him, he said, well, it's the woman. It's all her fault, you know. And uh, verse 7, And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. Now, um, Shur is, was, was sort of a boundary. It was a, it was called, the word means wall, and it really was a line of forts that defended Egypt. And she is probably on her way back to her home. She was Egyptian. She's fleeing with her child, so she's uh, probably uh, seeking to go back to Egypt. Um, and pausing before she gets to the border, she encounters this strange person called here the angel of the Lord. I'll come back to that in a minute. Well, And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she says, I flee from the face of my mistress. Now the angel of Yehovah, or Yahweh, or however you want to say it, is a term that causes a lot of puzzlement in the scripture. Um, it is frequently identified with God himself. You'll find that here in this chapter. You'll see him again in chapter 22, chapter 31, and right on through uh, the Torah, many, many places. And in a number of those places, if you examine the passage carefully, it would seem that that phrase, the angel or the messenger of Jehovah, is Jehovah himself. And you watch that closely. There are other places where it is distinct from Jehovah. That gets kind of confusing because on the one hand, it's really God. In other places, as yet, it's distinct from God. How might you as a student resolve that? What would be a possibility? How could somebody be God and yet be distinct from God? Christ, exactly right. John opens his gospel. In the beginning was the Word as a title. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God and so forth. And so... Um, and there's, of course, a third possibility, and that's really the one we're suggesting here, is that it's a the, what's, the, when theologians can't figure out what it really is, they give it a fancy name. Cover thing. So they call this a theophany, and it's, it, it, it's a term used to designate what they call a pre-incarnate uh, presence of Christ. And so um, how it's going, which of these you pick, actually all three can be true. So... Um, as we go, we're going to encounter this again and again. I thought I'd just lay that out in front. The angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. 
And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And uh, Ishmael means God will hear. And uh, the, uh, he mentions a multitude here. In fact, Ishmael's going to have 12 sons, just like you know, Jacob will ultimately have. And I want you to notice, though, what he, he says here in verse 10, or what he says, I should say. The angel of the Lord said unto her, what does he say? I will multiply. This is one of the reasons, as you look at this, the grammar, you begin to get support for the idea that this is actually God speaking. And it's, and it, and it's the more comfortable conjecture, I think, to, to see this as the second person of the Trinity. But let's move on. Notice what he prophesies, what God prophesies about Ishmael. He will be a wild man. And by the way, the, the, the word wild man is actually pera. It means wild ass. And I'm not being flippant here. He will be a wild ass man. His hand will be against every man. His hand will be against every man. Even his own brothers, by the way. And every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. That's a formula for a real mess. And that's the history of the Semitic people, the non Jewish Semitic peoples. They have a hatred, a tribal hatred, that goes very, very deep. The only thing that unites them is their common hatred for Israel. But take Israel away, they fight among themselves about everything else you can think of. And uh, so just recognize that. And it was prophesied, and it's painfully true today. The entire world today trembles because of a legacy of hate that goes way, way back, and that legacy goes far earlier than just Islam. Islam is just the current embodiment of it. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me, there again, for she said, Have I also looked after him that seeth me? Thou God. Interesting phrase. There again we have this, this theophany suggestion. Wherefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Now, by the way, this, this same well we're going to encounter in chapter 24 in a remarkable way. But uh, let's just move on now. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. And Abraham was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. Fourscore. Score is 20. That's 80. He's 86 years old. He will be 100 when Isaac is born. Okay. One of the things that we're going to encounter as we go through the Torah in general and Genesis and specifically is we're going to be talking about real people and real issues on the one hand, but we'll continually discover that we're also talking allegorically. We're going to see the tensions between Ishmael and Isaac, and we're going to see that modeled by the New Testament writers as a struggle between the flesh and the spirit, and this flesh versus the spirit. See, Abraham, the, the New Testament writers are going to make the point that Abraham, this whole issue is 430 years before the law. See, the law hasn't been given yet. That's Moses' that's length. This is before the law. The promises that preceded the law cannot be annulled by breaking the law. 
because they're given before the law even existed. Do you get the understand the logic? That's what Paul will develop in Galatians chapter 3. And Ishmael versus Isaac is going to be portrayed as a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And the, the, two, the two sons of two principles, the flesh and spirit. Ishmael was a son of the flesh as far as God is concerned. It was Abram trying to help. Isaac was born supernaturally as a, as a result of God's will, God's prophetic uh, determination. So Ishmael, the flesh, is in the flesh and thus typifies unbelief. And we're going to find that the son of the bondwoman will not be heir is part of the dictum that's going to come forth. Isaac is the son of the promise, of the prophecies of God. So he, Isaac came in response to faith. And so the ultimate triumph of faith, of course, will be climaxed next session when we explore Genesis 22. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. It's full of surprises. When we get to, let's just pop over the New Testament a little bit and notice how Paul himself draws some lessons for us here. One of the most important commentaries you have on the Old Testament is the New Testament. Paul says in Galatians 4, starting about verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, one from Mount Sinai in which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. Whoops, wait a minute, what's he saying? He is looking at the law as putting people under bondage. He's equating the flesh and trying to keep the law in contrast to walking by faith and the freedom we have in Christ. Going on after, next verse 25. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. He's speaking allegorically here. Do you follow me? And he answered to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage to her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath a husband. Wow. There's a lot there that, uh, that uh, this would imply. You could build a case from this that the unsaved will far outnumber the saved. Jesus said the same thing. Narrow is the gate. One gate's very narrow, one's very wide. You've got a big gate with a lot of people going through. You've got their own gate. But he continues. Paul says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. It's interesting. You know, anyone that doesn't believe in Satan should try opposing him for a while. And uh, it's not a surprise that the world in general is against the true believers. It's not a surprise that the really bib people walking biblically will be an offense even within some denominational contexts. Just be sensitive to that. It, even so it is now. Nevertheless, Paul says, What saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. For, uh, free, excuse me, free woman. He is quoting a passage that's where we're studying. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Praise God. Okay, that's Genesis 16. Let's move on to 17. And we're going to have three things occur there. The circumcision is going to be instituted. The son Isaac is going to be specifically promised, even though Ishmael is in being. 
And their names are going to be changed. There's some surprises there. We'll take a look at Chapter 17, verse 1. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. This is the first occurrence of this unusual phrase, El Shaddai. And uh, it's a, a, a word that uh, you'll find several times. It's so, it's so familiar to us, but here it's the first time it appears. The term El Shaddai, its roots are in some scholastic dispute. Some scholars believe it means mountain. Some people think it comes from the breast. So it's the all-providing one is the concept here. Uh, it certainly speaks of Almighty. Almighty is probably not a bad translation, but there's also a concept in the root word of pro- not only uh, uh, being a refuge, but also being a, a, uh, a source of all blessings. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect, complete. Um, the, 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 the Greek, the Septuagint, takes the word, that word for Almighty and, and translates it sufficient. God is sufficient. That's a very powerful word. Second verse is, And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. He's not just the father of the Jewish nation. Many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abraham, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. Now let's not just slip over that. The word Abraham means father of many nations. I want you to visualize this guy. When we get to chapter 20, he's going to get in there and he's going to talk about uh, um, uh, where they go to uh, another guy by the name of Abimelech. And what's your name? Abraham. Well, I'm the father of many nations. And how many sons do you have? Well, I don't have any. <laughs> but how many are the father of many nations? I mean, can you visualize? You, that's what his name means, father of many nations. And uh, you can almost see them try to hold back the Snickers, you know. But anyway, move on. I will make thee exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. You know, it's astonishing to me. We went through all of this in chapter 15, where God went through this elaborate ritual to separate the thing and, and go through it to make an unconditional covenant. Here in chapter 17, he reconfirms it, and it's everlasting covenant. In the New Testament, it's again and again reconfirmed in Hebrews 6 and elsewhere. And in spite of that, it's astonishing to me how many prominent biblical scholars have no grasp of the fact that that covenant is everlasting covenant. They have this concept they try to force fit into the situation, well, the church has replaced Israel. If that's true, that's making God a liar. There are many points of view you can have that are different, and that's fine. But be careful that the point of view you have doesn't indict the character of God. It's perfectly comfortable to have different views about some problem verse. Don't misunderstand me. And I encourage you not to accept mine, but study yourself. Do your own homework. But be careful when you take a position that implicitly indicts the character of God. God 
delights in making and keeping promises. Don't disparage his promises. Some of them are very technical and you want to read the fine print. Fine. But let's understand God means what he says and says what he means. And I will give unto thee and thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger. All the land of Canaan. Really? It's too bad the PLO doesn't see it that way. It's too bad the UN doesn't see it that way. It's too bad the EU doesn't see it that way. And tragically also, it's too bad the current administration seems to be oblivious to that also, despite their other protestations. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Wow. And I'll be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant before, uh, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep, between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Circumcision of itself is just a right, but it's a symbol of a commitment of them to God. Now, don't think that they're the only ones circumcised. There are other, other cultures that did do it in those days. But in this case, it's given a special significance between God and the descendants of Abraham. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Circumcision. We speak of it so, so casually. It's interesting. They now know from a lot of tests that vitamin K, which is a clotting element, is not formed in an infant until the fifth to the seventh day. So you don't want to circumcise too early that it'll, it'll bleed to death or at least cure the problem. There's another uh, substance called prothrombin. It's also necessary for clotting. In the third day of an infant, it's only 30% of normal. On the eighth day, it peaks at 110% of normal. And it it then levels off to normal, to the 100% regular thing. So knowing what we now know from medical history, if you're going to circumcise, what day do you do it? After the seventh day, for sure. You do it on the eighth day and not after the eighth day. It's a bit more risky. As they get older, there's less risk. You you can do it to grown-ups can get circumcised. It's not pleasant, but it's not life-threatening. To an infant, it would be. Now, the question I love to ask is, how did Moses in the Torah know that? And my only conjecture is, did he do it by trial and error? <laughs> I don't think so. No, God told him. He had an insight with a designer. Okay. You know, at this point, it's also, I love to just insert this. Um, they've discovered the, papy- the papyrus ebers, they call it. It's a papyrus from the 14th century B.C. And it's a medical uh, uh, collection of remedies. And you've got an embedded splinter. What you're supposed to do is apply worm's blood and ass's dung to it. I don't think that's too good an idea, but that's what apparently they had. Are you losing your hair? Well, you want to apply six fats. Fats from a horse, a hippopotamus, a crocodile, a a snake, and an ibex. Anybody try that? Don't knock it if you haven't tried it. (laughs) Turning gray, guys. Anoint with blood of a black calf which has been boiled in oil or fat of a rattlesnake. In fact, if you look at a well-stocked medicine cabinet back in Egyptian days, they would include lizard's blood, swine's teeth, putrid meat, moisture from pig's ears, milk goose grease, ass's hooves, animal fats, 
and excrement from humans, donkeys, antelopes, dogs, cats, and flies, all suitably cataloged. Now, why am I getting into this? I'll tell you why. We know from the scripture that Moses was tutored in all the knowledge and wisdom of the Egyptians. He grew up in this background. One of the little quiet miracles you need to recognize as you go through the Torah, the five books of Moses, you will not find a hint of any of these. It's an argument from silence, but it's a profound one. That from that background, there isn't in the scripture any allusions to, to um, these weird superstitions that, that were the high wisdom of the, the culture he came from. I think that's provocative. Now, Moses does talk about the circumcising the hearts. God would circumcise the hearts of his people so they'd be devoted to him. It's a figure of speech referring to devotion. Deuteronomy 30 is an example. Unbelief is spoken of as having an uncircumcised heart. And obviously it's speaking here allegorically. We're going to talk about, in our next session, we're going to talk a little bit about types, allegories, similes, metaphors. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 10, God says, I speak by my prophets and by similes. And we have, there's at least five or six different kinds. In fact, there are 200, over 200, figures of speech, different kinds of figures of speech in the Bible. And they're all cataloged and, and examples given in appendix to our, our, our textbook on this. Paul also speaks of circumcision of the heart. He, call, he says it evidences salvation and fellowship with God in Romans 2 and also Romans 4. He uses that expression. So circumcision is denotatively speaking of what we're dealing with, what we're dealing here with Abraham, but it's used connotatively to refer to devotion to God. Let's continue in verse 14. And the uncircumcised man, child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. That must have really hit him between the eyes. Are you kidding? Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. In fact, that's what her name means, princess. Now I want to give you a little Hebrew lesson here, if I may. Hebrew prior to the Babylonian captivity, was written differently than it was written when they came out of Babylon, after that 70 captivity. On the slide here, you'll see on the left, is the way the Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet, was written. It's sort of like a longhorn steer, like sort of reminiscent of the kind of skull you would see in the desert of a, of a, of a formerly you know, a longer steer. On the right-hand side, you see the Aleph as it's commonly printed today in the Hebrew that's normally used. That's an Aleph. What I'm going to try to get across to you with just a couple of examples is Hebrew is an absolutely unique language on the planet Earth in, in, one, in several respects, one of which is it is not just phonetic, it is conceptual. There are pictographs in Chinese, but that's a whole other kind of a thing. This is an ideograph. That aleph carries not only the sound that is associated with the aleph, but it also carries a concept with it. The aleph implies the first, first letter, it also implies strength or leader. Since it represents the ox, it's got strength is the idea. And since it's first and it's got strong, it's also is connotatively used as a leader. Are you with me so far? See, the University of uh, 
the Hebrew, uh, Department of Hebrew in the University of Arizona, they've discovered that if they teach the kids how the letters were written previously, it's easy to understand what the letters mean, not only what they sound, what they mean. It's hard to get that from the way they're printed today because they've gone through transitions. But if you understand, if you understand how the letters were written back then, you can learn those meanings in, in, a, in a very brief little study. And if you do that, you can read about 80% of Hebrew because the words meaning is carried by not just the sound, the meaning is carried by the letters. Let me give you some other example. The second letter is bet. It looks like a little teepee, a little flat line with a triangle on top. Looks like what you and I would call, be tempted to call a teepee. As time goes on, that beth gets turned, and it becomes our B in our in our alphabet. And, uh, and of course, in the in the uh, the Hebrew current Hebrew, it looks it's it's, it's uh, different. It's the first letter of the Bible, Barashit. It's the first B. So, it, but the word beth means house. It's not only a letter; it has a concept. It means house or or that which is in the house, the family. And that's where we get the idea of Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethel, the house of God. See, the word Beth, Bet or Beth, is the name of the letter, but it also carries a concept. Let me show you how you put Suppose you put an Aleph and a Bet. Now, let me remind you, all languages flow towards Jerusalem. Nations that are east of Jerusalem go from right to left. Nations that are west of Jerusalem go from left to right. Latin and Greek and on and on and on, in contrast to not just Hebrew, but, but uh, uh, Aramaic, Farsi, uh, Sanskrit, you name it. So, uh, but so Hebrew goes from right to left. So an aleph and a bet would be, uh, an aleph and a bet is the, is, is the word ab. What does the word ab mean? Well, aleph means what? The leader. Bet is the house. Ab means the leader of the house. It's their word for father. You see, you get, you get the idea? See, here's a word you could have inferred knowing the letters, without knowing, not memorizing, you know, that F-A-T-H-E-R happens to mean father. You with me? The diminutive term of that, daddy, is Abba, by which we cry, Abba, Father, Paul tells us. Now, there's another interesting letter called He. It's a breath. If you may, if you may remember Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw or the musical that came from that, My Fair Lady, when Henry Higgins, the language expert, was trying to get Liza Doolittle, this Cockney, Doolittle, this Cockney gal, to pronounce her H's. In Hartford, hurricanes hardly happen. She had to practice to blow out the candle by saying the H's, right? H is just a breath. Now, because it's, and, and we don't know where the letter came from. Some people suspect it's an open window or hands raised. We don't, we're not sure because the word hey uh, turns out to mean behold on the one hand or it's revealed. It also can mean breeze, wind, or spirit. The he can be a, 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 a abbreviation for the Ruach Elohim, the, uh, the Holy Spirit. But here's the interesting thing. If you take the word achab, if you take a he and put it in the middle of a other word, it represents the essence of whatever that word is. If we take the name father, Aleph and Abet, and put a he in it, you have a hab. It's the essence of the Father. What is the heart of the essence of it's the name love? You see, the Ahab is love. And so that's the, by putting the hay in there, you, you have the essence. But you, I want to get across, isn't the specifics, memorizing this is the point. Once you understand, here's an alphabet that is conceptual at its roots. It's the only language that's like that. And uh, 
It has some other properties that are actually astonishing that happens to lend itself to extraterrestrial communication, but that's what our book's all about. Let's go back here to this. Abram is spelled as you see it on the screen. Sarai is spelled as you see it on the screen. What God says, he changes their name. How did he change it? We always read that in the English. What did he do to change his name? He did just one thing. He put a he in it. Abraham and Sarah are exactly the same as they were before, except you've got a he thrown in there. Abraham, Sarah. He put the Spirit of God in them. Put the Spirit of God in them. And we're going to see that in, in, in all through the Scripture. You're going to find this little he shows up in the most interesting places. It turns out the Holy Spirit, at least in one case I'm aware of, has misspelled a word behind which lies a whole discovery in terms of the, the value of pi and all the, and the Solomon's labor and all that business. But let's get back to the text. I, I, I digress. That's happened to me once before. Um, Genesis 17, verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face <laughs> and he laughed. Now, this is not the laugh of disbelief. If he didn't believe it, he wouldn't be laughing. It's because he believes him, he's laughing. He said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, that is ninety years old, bear? And Abram said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. The natural plea of a proud father. He has a son. He's about thirteen, or whatever. But can't, you know, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, Itzak. And by the way, you know what Itzak means? Laughter. Laughter. Indeed. <laughs> you understand why it would be. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Here's a very important verse. Not only is Sarah going to have a child and is supernaturally born and supernaturally named, but his covenant is going to be confirmed to that Line, not Ishmael. That's the huge debate between the Quran and the Bible, because the Quran would have it otherwise. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God had said unto him. Abraham's quite a guy. You notice he didn't let the sun go down. God gave him a command. He did it. In chapter 22, God's going to say, go take your son and offer him on a hill. And the next morning, he saddles up the donkeys and off they go. He didn't mess around. He apparently had learned his lesson from, from uh, chapter 12. So he's, a lot of learning has gone on here. And Abram was 90 years old and 9 when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael's son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael his son. And all the men of his house, born in the house, and bought with money of the stranger, were circumcised with him. Now, we've talked about the Abrahamic covenant. You say, which chapter is it in? It's actually in three chapters. We introduced it in chapter 12, where God promised to make him a great nation and bless, bless you in your name. I'll make you a blessing. He says, I'll bless those that bless you and curse them that curse you. And I'll give this land to your seed. That's all in chapter 12, remember? In chapter 15, God uh, codifies that in the strange ritual. 
and the covenant to Abram's physical seed was recommitted. The land was defined from the Euphrates to the Nile. And in Genesis 17, again, we have the covenant with a physical seed reconfirmed forever and the land of Canaan an everlasting possession. So there you have it. So all, when you think of the Abrahamic covenant, all three ch- these chapters uh, focus on this issue. Well, let's uh, go to chapter 18. The Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre. The word plains there actually should be translated oaks or terebinths, but anyway. And he sat in the tent, he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. I want you to visualize this, a very important thing. Heat of the day, uh, near Hebron. He left up, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. He said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. Uh, come to your servant. And they said, So do, as thou hast said. So Abraham, you get the impression, is almost overreacting here. He's really extending, aggressively extending hospitality. And I'm going to suggest to you one reason he did is I think he understood who they were. These aren't just three travelers passing by. Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran. Notice his haste all this. He ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good, and gave it unto a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter, listen carefully, he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had dressed, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. You notice that there's a lot of strange things going on here. Abraham's not sitting down with them. He's providing all this, serving them, and standing while they eat. Now, let's try to put this all together. Um, by the way, before I leave this other thought, these three, at this, these three measures of meal and this event that takes place here launches a tradition in all the descendants of Abraham, not just the Jews but also the Arabs. Three measures of meal is idiomatic of the fellowship offering. And, and you, most people, when they read Matthew 13, don't get it because they're not Jewish. In Matthew 13... Jesus gives them seven kingdom parables. And in one of those parables, he says, in verse 33, it says, And another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And if you're Jewish, you gasp in horror. Because three measures of meal are supposed to be the fellowship offering, supposed to be unleavened bread. But in this case, Jesus is likening to what's going on here with a, a major, major mistake. A woman is putting leaven in three measures of meal. And an Orthodox Jew or a rabbi would gasp in horror. That's not to be done. And that's exactly the point that Jesus makes in the fourth parable. And it also lines up with the fourth letter to the fourth church. If you take the seven churches and the seven parables, they line up. And that's, it's Je- Queen Jezebel, the false doctrine, and so forth. I'll let you guys sort that out in your separate study. But I want you to notice, let's get back to the basic thing here. Abraham recognized these guys. Why do I say that? He hurried to them. He hurried back to the tent. He ran to the herd. And his servant hurried. 
There's an urgency here. There's a priority being set up. He bowed low before them. He got the water to wash their feet. Doesn't say he actually did the washing. He probably had a servant do that, but he, he's in the act here. He served them freshly baked bread, a choice calf, and curds and milk. By the way, what do you notice is wrong with that? Did you pick up on that? And he stood while they're eating. But you notice what's wrong with that? It's a non-kosher meal. If you have Jewish friends, you can always point this out. They love you to do that. Um, this idea, Abraham served them veal and curds and milk. And if you go to any Orthodox Jewish household, they have two refrigerators, one for dairy, one for meat. And all in Israel, you will not find a restaurant that will serve milk and meat together. Your breakfast there will not have bacon or sausage. They'll have lots of fish and things, but no meat, and, uh, because that's the kosher laws. All of which is built, we believe, on a misunderstanding of one verse in the Scripture, out of which has come a whole... What some, some Jewish people feel is just a racket of the rabbis because you can't buy meat unless there's a duty guy there to bless it and all to make it kosher. And there's, there's, a, if there's a whole thing to increase the costs and provide employment But, but uh, in, in, in the view of some of the cynics. But in any case, the kosher laws, it's interesting, the kosher laws um, are not operative here in Genesis 17, it would seem. They said to him, where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, behold the tent. See, I, rec- I think they recognize that three people are the Lord himself and two angels. And follow me through here. Where they said to him, where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, behold, in the tent. She's probably in the back part. The tent had a back part where the women were. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. Now Sarah heard it in the, t- in the tent door, which is behind them. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and well-stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Nice way of putting it. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? You understand her skepticism. And the Lord, notice who's speaking here? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, I have a surety bear a child which am old? And she's embarrassed that he knew what she was thinking. She tried to deny it. Then he says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. I can imagine. This guy is obviously a powerful character. He can read her thoughts. And she's embarrassed to have him discover this. He said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. To get the picture of what happens here, I believe the two angels continued walking. And the Lord held back a little bit to talk to Abraham. And we're going to have one of the most interesting dialogues in the scripture coming here. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, because, and he said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abram stood yet before the Lord. Now, I want you to think of Abram's mindset. He may have had just a concern for Sodom in general, 
Or he may have had concern because Lot was there, his nephew. Both are true. Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Boy, that's a question, isn't it? That's a big question. You could write a doctor's thesis on exploring that issue. Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? This is Abraham talking to the creator of the universe here. He says, will, the, will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure, if there be fifty righteous within the city, will thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? Good question. Suppose there's fifty guys in the city. That be far from thee to do after this manner. This is Abraham's tutoring God here. <laughs> I wish I could do this with a good New York accent here. Um, that be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? There's a challenge. He's challenging God here. And if it, you know, the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. So in other words, God says, If there's 50 We'll scratch, right? Abraham's not finished. <laughs> Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which, which I, which am but dust and ashes. <laughs> I can see him. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for the lack of five? See, would you believe, you know, 45? And, and God says, If I find there 40 and five, I will not destroy it. Well, I think Abraham figured he's on a roll here. <laughs> he spake unto them yet again and said, Peradventure there be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. So God says, There's forty. I, I won't do it. Now, Abraham's getting a little bolder here now. He said to him, oh, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be thirty found there. He said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. We're getting down to the money here, aren't we? He said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak to the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. He said, I will not destroy it for the twenty's sake. Oh, and he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. <laughs> Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. So, Okay. And they stop there. The question that has to be in Abraham's mind is what about his nephew? He would have loved to have said, Lord, what if there's just one there? But he, first of all, he's probably pushing his luck a little here with God, maybe. Maybe he's also afraid to ask that question because he may not be sure of Lot standing either. You follow me? He didn't have the privilege of Peter's second letter where he just defines Lot as a righteous man. Obviously not walking in the spirit. He's got some problems, but he's, he's, he's counted as righteous by Peter. So, uh, so anyway, uh, Abraham begs off. But this is a very important principle because you in your own mind have to come to a conclusion. What would God have said if Abraham said, what if there's just one? And you're going to get the answer to that in the next chapter. Because you're going to discover that not only is there one there, 
But the angels cannot do their job until they get him out of there. It isn't just a gesture for his benefit. It's a requirement of their job to get Lot out of. Many people miss that. It's subtlety, but it's important. The Lord went his way, and as soon as he had left communion with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And now we come to Genesis 19, and we get to the big climax here. There came two angels to Sodom at even. I, I, I presume, don't know this, I presume they're the two guys that we've just had dinner with. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, which means he was a judge in the community. He was a, a councilman, whatever you call him. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, in other words, his house, and tarry all night and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. <laughs> really? <laughs> hey, guys, you don't know what's going on here. Lot pressed upon them greatly, and they, and, and they turned in unto him, entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. He obviously made it quite clear that they would not be safe in the street that night. In fact, it gets worse, as you'll see. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, it's interesting, by the way, it doesn't say just a few of them, or a renegade group, Whatever they were, they apparently were symptomatic of the whole city. The men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house around, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And as you understand what's going on here, that's a shocker. Because what are these people? They're homosexuals. And they're after these guys. And I'm going to suggest to you, in a sense of speaking, the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality. It was the condoning and pervasiveness of it. That's the indictment. Not that, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying that's the, it's the extreme that we're dealing with here. The men of Sodom compassed the house, round young and old, all people from every quarter. I assume that means rich and poor, all kinds. They called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And I think most of you are familiar enough with the King James English to understand what he's talking about. They're talking about sexual abuse. That's where the word sodomite comes from. And uh, it's, it's fashionable today to call them gay. That's nonsense. They're not gay at all. It's, life, it's a life-shortening practice. They're new. It's called sin. The sin is homosexuality. But it goes by the name of sodomites because of this uh, allusion here. Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him. Get the picture. His guests are safely inside. He's out on the porch outside trying to hold off this mob. I said, pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Notice how far Lot is willing to go. This is really disturbing. It has other implications. He behold now, this lot speaking. Behold now, I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. Boy, you have to have mixed feelings about this one. Because he obviously means well in the sense of hospitality to these strangers. But you think he's, he's crossed a line here, hasn't he? Now, you're going to get confused because these two daughters are apparently virgin daughters, and yet they have husbands, but you have to understand they're betrothed, not consummated yet. 
You know, it's a part of the Jewish thing. We won't get into that here. But Now, what did the homosexuals say a lot about that offer? They're not interested. They said, stand back. And they said, and again, this fellow, now they're speaking among themselves about Lot. This one fellow came into sojourn, meaning he came there temporarily, but now he's settled here. And he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with him? And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. This is a tough scene. This is a tough scene. But the next verse, the angels supernaturally rescue Lot. And the men put forth their hand, pulled Lot into the house to them, and shut to the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. (laughs) You can see trying to be a director of a movie version of this thing, could you? And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides, son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. They're giving a lot of ultimatum here. For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons and the sons-in-law, which married his daughters. Now that language is confusing because you have to understand they were betrothed and when the betrothal was you know, considered an irrever- irrevocable step. Probably analogous to Joseph and Mary before, the, you know, anyway. Um, I don't want to get into the whole Jewish wedding thing. We've got enough to cover here, but you get the idea. Anyway, which married his daughters and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But his, uh, these, these fiancés, or whatever they were of the daughters, they, among them said, he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons. They thought he was kidding. They thought he's, you know, uh, not, his elevators are stopping at all floors or something. He's either, okay. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters. Notice the sons are out of the picture at this point. Which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters. And the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. These angels are, for, are grabbing them and dragging them out of town. Understand the urgency here. It came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, lots of, or he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot is apparently also a negotiator. He says, Lot said to them, Oh, not so, my Lord. You know, you would think that if an angel told you, By the way, there's a nuke in the city. It's going to go off in a few hours. You'd get out of there. You know? Not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. No kidding, guy. I mean, they got some risks, man, but at least you're going to be alive, right? So he, but he says, Behold now, this city is near to flee to, and is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul, so they're going to go to Zor, which means little, by the way. Now let me uh, escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said unto them, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow the city for which thou hast spoken. In other words, Zor is going to be spared because Lot's going to go there. Interesting. But you notice the next verse. I think verse 22 is a very key verse in this whole chapter. 
Haste thee, escape thither. For, notice what the angel says, I cannot do anything until thou be come thither. In other words, until you get out of here. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zor. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zor. The Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind. I don't, you know, we always see her in a little Sunday school books like she just turned her head and looked back. Maybe she did. I suspect she dallied on a ridge or something to watch what's going on and got nailed by some of the sulfur and what have you. But anyways, the wife looked back from behind them, and she became a pillar of salt. And if you're in that region, by the way, there are lots of pillars because it's that kind of an area uh, from all the brimstone, the burnt sulfur and all that stuff, in the south end of the Dead Sea. And uh, so it's interesting how often um, this is referred to even in the New Testament. In Luke 17, the Lord, the Lord talks about this in terms of his second coming. It says, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day which he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. There's a lot of scholastic dispute about some passages like this in Matthew and elsewhere. Is it the second coming or is it the rapture? And, and, and there's lots of ways it might... Those passages I'm referring to might refer to the rapture. It's clear here he's talking about the second coming. Remember Lot's wife. Look back. You get, out, you get out of town and get out of town now. And that's exactly what Jesus admonishes those who are in Judea to do when the abomination of desolation takes place. Matthew 24 is your main passage on this. But also, um, another interesting remark Jesus makes in Matthew 11. He says, speaking of Capernaum, and thou Capernaum which art exalted unto heaven shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Boy, that's a heavy verse. Capernaum's in big trouble. He goes on, but, but I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Whew. John, John in his first letter, as, as we reckon it, Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, three things, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's exemplified by the plight of Lot and his family. Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. He looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. You know, it's interesting that uh, from Hebron, it's possible to see the southern end of the Dead Sea uh, from the immediate vicinity of Hebron. You can actually do it. And clearly the wages of sin is death, as the scripture talks about. And uh, it's interesting that there is a difference in level in the Dead Sea. The northern part's about 1,300 feet. The southern part's only about 13 feet in depth. So there's, most scholars take for granted that for a lot of reasons, but the, a lot of the evidence is not really quite conclusive, that Sodom and Gomorrah was what is now the southern end of the Dead Sea. But anyway, let's move on. It came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. And Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him. And he feared to dwell in Zor. And he dwelt in a cave, 
he and his two daughters. Um, here's a guy that was chasing riches. That's why he was a councilman in this what he thought was a gorgeous city. And look where he ends up. The wages of sin is death. So he and his two daughters are um, um, in Zor in a cave. He, you know, it fascinates me how often people, the losers, are in caves. In Joshua, the kings that opposed Joshua are retreating caves. In Revelation chapter 6, who shall save us from the, blood of the, from the anger of the, the wrath of the Lamb? The kings hide in caves. That's the parallel. Joshua is a, is a structurally is a foreshadowing book of Revelation. Well, it's interesting how um, <laughs> this is somebody has uh, doctored up a familiar f- book, Hiding in Holes for Dummies, a reference for gutless dictators. You probably recognize the face that's peeking out from the coffin-sized <laughs> cavity there. But uh, anyway, I thought you'd get a laugh out of that. <laughs> anyway, speaking of his daughter, the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the seed of our father. They made their father drink with wine, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and perceived, and he perceived not that she lay down or when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay yesterday night with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also. And... Go thou in and lie with him that, he may pres- that we may preserve the seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him and he perceived not when she lay down or when, he, when she arose. And both the daughters of Lot were child, by child, with child uh, by their father. The firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. And the same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she also bare a son and called his name ben Anami, And the, it's the Ammonites uh, this, unto this day. The son of Ammon, in other words, this day. And so let's wrap this one short little, and we'll wrap this up. Abram journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and journeyed in Gerar. And uh, Gerar is about 12 miles south of Gaza, to give you a rough perspective of this, about 50 miles south of Hebron. So he's moved south a little bit, not all the way down to Egypt, but down into what really would be Philistine country. And Abram said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said unto him, Behold, thou art... But a dead man, (laughs) some dream, for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. You know, this is an interesting contrast, because here's Abraham, the father of faithful, acting in a despicable way, really, and here is a pagan showing more class and integrity than Abraham. Abimelech had, had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocency of my hands have I done this. This is Abimelech making his defense before the Lord. God said to him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the tra- did this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. In other words, she was under God's protection for a lot of reasons. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet. First place that occurs in the Bible, by the way. Uh, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live, and if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. God has a way of explaining things quite clearly. <laughs> Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? 
And what have, what have I offended thee, that thou hast brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. Indeed. And Abimelech said unto Abram, What sawest thou that, that, that thou hast done this thing? And Abram said, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they shall slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And uh, came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said unto her, This is my kindness which thou shalt show unto me at every place whither we shall come. Say of me, he is my brother. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them to Abraham and restored to him Sarah, his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee. Dwell where it pleaseth thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. And Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and manservants, for they bear, and they bear children. And the Lord, had fast, for the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Okay, so next time we're going to shift from Abraham to Isaac. We'll have two sessions on Isaac. And so we're going to discover next session, session 17, we're going to take three chapters. Read them ahead of time. Chapters 21, the birth of Isaac. Chapters 22, this strange chapter of the offering of Isaac. Does God endorse child sacrifice? No. This guy was a grown man, but still doesn't endorse it. What's going on here? And, verse, and chapter 20, we're going to skip, skip chapter 23 for now. I have my private reasons for wanting to handle that with the following session. I want you to, we're going to focus on 22 and 24 in some surprising ways. There are some surprising discoveries that we're going to try to uh, uh, glean uh, in chapters 22 and 24. They are unquestionably, in my mind, my favorite passages of prophecy. And I'll show you why when we get there. But read them for next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. One thing about Abraham is a real guy. He's not perfect. He stumbles, makes mistakes. But what a blessed man. And he was, in the long and short of it, faithful. He walked with God. And we can disparage some of the things he did appropriately because they were sinful, and yet, at the same time, we can stand back in comfort that he was forgiven, he was declared righteous because of his faith. And even back here from Genesis 15, verse 6, that he, he believed in God and that was counted him for righteousness. And the entire book of Romans takes that theme and builds it brick by brick, logically, with an integrity that has never been equaled. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you for Abraham. We thank you that you've called him. We thank you that you've gone to such trouble, such extremes, to lay out and protect a plan that would lead to the blessings that you have in store for us. We're stunned as we begin to understand the foundations that were laid, the depth of commitment that was climaxed at the cross. We thank you, Father, for your word, and we thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit to open it to our lives and our understanding. We do pray, Father, that you would indeed open all these things to our understanding, not just the narrative in the historical sense, but also the spiritual lessons that we each need to apply to our own lives. 
as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.